welcome to the sixth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on your podcast app and leave a review. It only takes a moment, as Jerry Herman would say, and you'd be really helping the show find more listeners. And please spread the word about the podcast to those who enjoy talking about musical theater. My guest today is Landon Braverman. Landon is a Brooklyn-based composer and lyricist originally from Vancouver, Canada. He is an alum of the Graduate Musical Theatre Writing Program at NYU Tisch, and he is currently collaborating with Anna Jetsemski on the glam rock musical Captain Zook. With Derek P. Hassler, he has written the scores for Picture Perfect at Prospect Theatre, Queen of the West, and Choices. Landon is the co-founding artistic director of the Canadian Musical Theatre Writers Collective, a national organization devoted to supporting and promoting the work of Canadian musical theatre writers at home and abroad. We're going to talk today about the 2012 Michael John Lacusa and Sybil Pearson musical, Giant. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Again, a second time guest. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Well, we haven't uh, had you on since the first season, so excited to have you back now in season six. But we'll uh, still do some get to know our guest questions, different from the first time. Which musical has had the greatest impact on you? I'm going to say Jesus Christ Superstar. It probably is the show that has most ignited my obsession with writing rock and roll-based musical theater. Um, I think it's one of the better examples of doing a through-sung show. Uh, And what's interesting to me is that the show recently celebrated its 50th anniversary and has been back on tour, which I saw um, this summer uh, in New Jersey. And I was amazed at how crazy the score still is just revolutionary 50 years on it is still in my opinion um in some ways rocks harder and feels more contemporary than a lot of those you know quote-unquote contemporary broadway scores we've had in the last 10 years um so you know as someone who's like fascinated by the the integration of contemporary rock and roll styles with musical theater storytelling i find this show really inspirational for me uh, in terms of finding a way to to balance all of those things. Who is your favorite musical theater writer? Jonathan Larson. Um, I still remember receiving the Rent double CD package for Hanukkah. And I was pretty young at the time. And my parents, I begged them for it. And my parents were like, I don't think we're supposed to buy you this. Because Shoshana, do you remember those parental advisory stickers? Oh, yes. Well, Rent was maybe the only cast album at the time <laughs> one of those. And they're like, I'm not sure we're supposed to buy this for you. And I begged them for it. And I literally um, ruined it. I listened to it so many times. I scratched both discs. Oh, my God. Um, so that was really, really inspirational for me. Um, and then I discovered Tick, Tick, Boom. And uh, right around when I started sort of moving away from, I started as a, as a 
musical theater performer and then moved into acting, excuse me, moved away from acting and into writing in college. And that was around when I discovered Tick, Tick, Boom. And so that really connected me, not just to his work, but to obviously his incredible narrative. Um, so I just find so much about, um, again, sort of similar to Jesus Christ Superstar, these writers that wanted to marry rock and roll with musical theater and um, his commitment to the to the craft and the genre um, was just unbelievably inspirational. Tick, Tick, Boom is such a big show, I think, for writers. Is there a show you've gained a greater appreciation for over time? Yes, um, I would say uh, umbrella term would be the Rodgers and Hammerstein classics, and most specifically The Sound of Music and The King and I. When I was a kid, my relation to a lot of those golden age classics was the like, you know, constant community theater productions that you'd have to go see your friends in or that you were in. Um, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. And, you know, now I think there's a, a, a bigger um, array of modern musicals that are going through regional theaters and, and amateur theater companies. But um, 15, 20 years ago, um, I felt like you were seeing a lot of productions of The Sound of Music and The King and I in those shows. And they were long. And, you know, they weren't the best. They weren't always the best, you know, interpretations of it for various reasons. And so when I moved to New York to go to NYU and study writing, my thought of like old shows was they were long, they were boring, they had nothing to say about our time and our place and our politics and 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 all that stuff. And then I went and saw that Kelly O'Hara revival of The King and I, uh, and I was a, I was destroyed by it. Um, mm. I did not understand the layers of depth um, in that show. Uh, and then I rewatched The Sound of Music, which I hadn't watched in probably 10, 15 years, hadn't watched since I was a young kid. And again, also completely discovered new things in it. And, and I think what I really realized about their shows that I love, the scores are great. We all know the scores are great. The melodies are great. The harmonic movement is very, um, you know, um, approachable, but sophisticated. But it's those librettos. Those librettos are amazing. What I thought were long, boring, textual-driven pieces are actually these really multi-layered um, uh, pieces of great craft that just, if you see them done well, uh, have they're just illuminating in many, many ways. Totally agree. Um, what's your favorite musical that people aren't talking about enough? I'm going to say Groundhog Day, which had a very short run on Broadway, despite pretty good critical acclaim. It just didn't seem to catch fire. You're listening to this and going, Landon, you're out of your mind. I've listened to the album and it's boring and the songs aren't catchy and they don't make any sense. I'm going to say you're right. I'm going to say, and I'm going to get in big trouble for doing this, find a theater that's doing it or find a bootleg and watch the production because when you see the score working with the actual show and the storytelling, it's one well-crafted, clever, fun piece of theater. And I was really moved by the ending. So, Yeah, I, would, I did see that on Broadway and I feel like I would love to see a, another production of that just like a completely different production. Not that that production was bad. I would just love to see it like, I don't know. I just feel like that story could be really well served by like a lot of people reimagining 
or like putting their own takes on it because it's such an iconic film. Yeah. And I, and I do, and I know that, you know, it's funny. I was speaking with someone, um, a friend of mine who's also a writer um, yesterday. She was saying, Oh, I hated it. I said, <laughs> why? Well, the character's totally unlikable. I just didn't want to go on the journey with him. And I liked that about it. I was totally mm-hmm. following this very engaging, but really reprehensible character. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, this is the great thing about art. It's super subjective. I totally understand mm-hmm. why there are people that didn't like the show. But I also think there's a lot of people that, because it didn't run, just don't even know mm-hmm. and haven't even right, invested right. in it. And I think there are some people that are going to really get a lot out of it. And I think it just proves, again, that Tim Minchin is a, a really special voice. Yeah, I think it just kind of showed me that that character walks a really fine line. And you have to be able to bring the audience on that character's side. So whether you agree that that was successful or not in the show, that yes, that's that's arguable. But I that's what that show really showed. Because like you watch the movie... And like, you're just so used to Bill Murray. You'd like, I, I feel like I didn't even think about it. You know, I don't even think about it. But when you see a different interpretation, which is what I mean, like it's good to see like different like interpretations of the material. I was like, oh yeah, like this, this character does walk a fine line um, of like com- maybe com- like being a completely alienating jerk <laughs> of a character or oh. being like, someone like totally charming and endearing that you want to follow. Um, so it's, it's, it, that was what, I, that's kind of what I just took away from it. That was really interesting to me. And I think the score is also sort of part of that fine line. It's not, if you press play on that album, you're sort of going to be lost and you're going to be like, this is the same guy that wrote Matilda. Where are the like <laughs> standalone great songs with these cool melodies and weird lyric plays and, the show's just not interested in that. It's interested in this sort of, I think, more sort of organic, cohesive exploration of of, of life and mistakes and, and, mm-hmm. and character traits. I was really in for that. What is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to? I'm going to say The Desert, which is the climactic number from Giant. I mean, that song is really a, a, a sort of a mini opus because it's 10 minutes and it's it's um, it's multiple sections uh, connected by uh, dialogue between the two main characters, uh, bringing them to their sort of emotional um, climax and, and conclusion of the story. Uh, and I just not since funny enough, us, us talking about Rogers and Hammerstein. And there's so many parallels between Giant and Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. Not since a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, I felt, had I seen a number like that, um, where there was this seamless integration between dialogue and music. And every time the music restarts, it, it feels very driven by the emotion and the character, so much so that you almost don't even realize you stopped and then went back into the music. And it just feels like one piece. So that in itself felt complex. But then the emotional states that it is able to explore for these characters... Um, I just didn't sort of know you could, uh, you could get there like that with this mm-hmm. this opus of a song that's not, you know, a lot of times you think your 11 o'clock number has to be like the big song. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this like, I don't know, this kind of just musical scene. 
that's mm-hmm. going to unpack everything we've been talking about for the last three hours. And then we're going to, we're going to sort of flip it on its head a little bit. And that for me was like, just kind of a masterclass in character driven, uh, writing and composition. Great. Well, let's find out how we get to that moment by, uh, talking about the whole show. So I always like to start with, uh, you know, our own connections to the show. And I know you have a, a very uh, specific connection and story. Yeah, so Giants uh, was in development, I think, in the late 20, uh, like, I think it started, I think its first production was at the Signature around like 2009. Mm-hmm. And then it wound up at the public in late 2012, I was finishing my master's at NYU in the graduate musical theater writing program at the time, um, literally around the corner from the public theater where it was going up. Now, the show was written by uh, Michael John Lacusa, music and lyrics, and libretto by Sybil Pearson. As you know, Michael John Lacusa has been on the faculty of that program for a long time as one of the teachers for the lab, and um, Sybil Pearson uh, was my thesis advisor. So I was very close with Sybil um, and, you know, was hearing a lot of stories from her and, and Michael John, who I wouldn't see as much around the building, but to some extent about they, the work they were doing in this massive novel that they were adapting in a show that used to be, that they dreamed originally would be Angels in America, but for musicals where you'd have to come <laughs> for two separate nights and how they needed to sort of turn it into a three hour show and, and Sybil making jokes that it's running two fifty nine and I'm cutting ever I'm cutting syllables so that we don't have to pay overtime for the orchestra. Oh I can't wait you, I can't wait for you to see this show that hopefully comes in under three hours so that so that, you know, Michael Greif doesn't get mad at me. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, can't wait to see this thing. Um so our whole class went, our whole cycle went to the final dress, um, which was a really cool experience and then I went and saw it two more times during the run and I was just floored by the whole thing um and then but that's not actually the end of my journey with the show I sort of had an interesting postscript to it which was the summer after I graduated a couple months later uh I was working with Kurt Deutsch at Shikaboom Ghostlight Records um which is one of the companies that does a lot of the cast albums and they did the cast album for Giant. So I got to be in the studio. I was also taught by the writers, though a little earlier in the timeline of things. I'm not sure exactly when with the infamous, uh, I guess, uh, genesis of this musical is Michael John Lacusa uh, was asked to buy the Edna Ferber estate or a family member to- I think the daughter the daughter to adapt this book. And he was like, I don't think I can do it, but he kind of turned to, he, he was like, if I do it, I'll need a book writer. Cause usually Michael John doesn't work with book writers. Um, so he turned to Sybil Pearson cause they work together at NYU. They do lab classes together and they started working together on it. And I, I think that was around like 2007. I saw that, that, began so that that was when I graduated so it's possible it was well that it began while I was in the, in the program 
um, that while I was walking down the hallway that that conversation took place. I don't know. But um, that that's kind of like the origin of the show. And I, I, did, I saw it when I was when it was at the public. Also, I wish I had seen the the four hour version. I kind of I'm so curious, too, on what that what that show was. I know. The people I know who saw the four-hour version say it was magnificent. That it was, like, they wish that the show continued in its four-hour version. Right. uh, Format. I mean, I know there were a lot of people who had criticisms of it in its three-hour version. They felt there were things that were, you know, missing. There was nuance Mm -hmm. missing. There were sort of plot holes. I do understand that, but I, I... I don't think there is big an issue as, as I think if there wasn't that history of what the show was before and that hadn't right. been in the narrative going into it, that primed people to watch the show in a certain way. And if I had not even known that and just watched the show for what it was at the public, I would have said, this is great. I'm following everything. Sure. It'd be great if it was longer. I could live in this world for another hour, but like, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have criticized it or yeah. uh, thought about certain and- things in that way. And I totally, yeah, and I totally understand theater, like, theater's not wanting to have a four-hour piece in their, <laughs> in their season, and, like, just a three-hour version being more uh, pro- programmable, <laughs> I guess sure. the word would be. Sure. So I, I totally get that, but, uh, yeah, just as, like, uh, oh, I, you know, wish I had seen that, but. Yeah. I, I mean, who know? I mean, I wish more theaters would produce giant in any format but i hope we do get another chance to see the four-hour version that's one of the interesting things for me about the show is that it it's still really niche this is a very expensive show with a large cast a large orchestra um and it's you know um it's not got the most you know sexy title or sexy sort of concept to it um it's a little old-fashioned in its own way it's a little romantic is that going to sell in today's Broadway climate? Now, I'm sure you and I could have a whole other podcast conversation about why that's a problem and Broadway needs to Broadway needs to do a better job of making it a marketplace that's open to lots of different stories and styles and genres, et cetera, et cetera. But that aside, it does surprise me that it hasn't disseminated, I don't know if that's really the right word here, but sort of trickled down into the professional and amateur world because – it's a great show for places to produce. I mean, it really is giant. It covers so, there's so many characters. Um, so you've got lots of casting opportunities. Um, uh, you have, and it just, it, it covers themes that are, are, are relevant to so many different types of people because it covers history, race, class, relationships between different generations, mothers and, 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 and sons, fathers and sons. Like It's, it's like everything is in there. Um, so I, I think it, you know, I think it's something that needs to be, um, looked at more. I don't know. It it just seems like another era, a previous era, this would have been just like the perfect fit for a Broadway show. Like no question. But yeah. Why don't we, why don't we just, uh, briefly, uh, go through the, the story broad strokes for, for folks who may not be familiar. Yeah, so Giant is interesting because there's the novel, and then there's the the fairly famous film, um, which is also, I think, about three and a half hours, which I've watched multiple times with Elizabeth Taylor, 
Rock mm-hmm. Hudson, and famously one of his only on-screen roles, James Dean. Um, the movie is not, the movie takes some liberties and the musical goes a little bit back to the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I highly, if people are, you know, as we talk about this, if you're interested in the story, I highly recommend reading the book. I read the book after seeing the show at the public and the, the and the Ferber was a genius, um, uh, really ahead of, ahead of their time. So, um, but you know, you're basically looking at a, uh, a story that starts with, um, a, a ranch owner, the Riata Ranch in Texas in the early 1900s, and uh, he marries a woman who comes from Eastern, East Coast High Society, arrives, and it's, it's sort of about what her arrival does to this ranch. Um, there's a little bit of a triangle with this sort of guy who works on the ranch named Jet Rank. It's the love triangle sort of complicated because it's not really a love triangle, mm-hmm in the traditional sense, but it's there. And then things get more complicated as we move through the story when Jet Rink discovers oil and the decision of whether to change this from being um, a a sort of old school style ranch that breeds cattle to becoming an oil field. Um, that happens, then we move forward in time. Texas is becoming an oil and money driven state. We start to learn about the politics with the Mexican population that lives there um, and the differing classes, socioeconomic issues, and really the embedded racism that the wife um, discovers in her husband that she didn't know. It's a lot about learning, uh, seeing it through her eyes and discovering all these things about Texas and its politics and its environment that she didn't, she thought it would be this grand romantic place and it's quite complicated. And then you move into another chapter, which is the children coming up and the disappointment the father has that his son doesn't also want to be a rancher, um, that he's more of an academic, wants to move to the East Coast, and that he falls in love with a Mexican woman who lives on the ranch um, and how other people react to that. Through all of this, really what you're following is the marriage between Leslie and Bick through these years, through these generations, and how they're, it's, to me, it's really a portrait of a marriage um, struggling and trying to find a way to survive in changing times and changing politics and changing money and changing racial relations, Um, which is, I think, why I love the show so much, because in some ways, all the big ticket items are there, but it's all hanging off of this very real relationship. And what's interesting to me about the show, um, which is maybe why also it's not as like commercially popular is, and this doesn't surprise me because we're talking about Michael John Lacusa, who's never been a quote unquote, you know, easy writer. Like he's not interested in writing the sort of tried and true formula. This in a way, I think people were hoping would be his like big crossover show. (laughs) And I, you know, because it was the sort of most unabashedly American romantic, mm-hmm. um, his most, probably his most sort of tuneful score. Um, that's not to say it's slavish to tune, like it's still unbelievably complex and and, and uh, fascinating. But um, what I find so interesting about the show is that the development of their marriage there are be if we were to go through the album and go through the story, there would be parts where you look at their big songs and you're like, on paper, you think this is regressive. They're kind of just restarting their relationship again because there was a conflict and she got mad at him for saying something racist or 
she's overwhelmed by the country, this new environment that she's in. Um, and then they'll have a song like Heartbreak Country. And it's like, no, we love each other. And let's work through this. Or the song where the uncle comes in, Bali, who I'm obsessed with that character. Um, uh, and giving them perspective of how to re-up their relationship. There's these constant markers along the show where they're sort of in a way renewing their vows to each other. And I think some people probably watch them and go, I don't understand. Like, are we like, they're together. Let's move on. But that's what I love about the show. And in fact, that final song, The Desert, is the same thing. It's them coming mm -hmm. together and saying, our marriage is not working. And the final line of it is, I don't want to cling on to false hopes. I just want to keep talking. And I think some people probably heard that and go like, wait, what? So they don't get a happy ending? And I was like, no, I just want to keep talking. How many times have I said that to my husband? That is like real life. Like that's what relationships are built on is keeping communication open. And I love that the show was not trying to tie anything up with a neat bow. It was not interested in that because frankly, life is messy. Marriages are messy. Race relations are messy. Um, so it's one of the things that I... Yeah, it's one of the things that I uh, really feel connected to with the show is every time I listen to it, it just illuminates something new about relationships and how they actually work in real life and how you could musicalize that. I will add that for those who know Showboat, the musical Showboat, Edna Ferber, the novelist, also wrote the novel Showboat. So you, can, I feel like that you can very much see like similarities of like, a sweeping story covering generations, the parents and the children uh, take like in one setting or I mean, showboat changes setting, I guess, but based around a, a place, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking earlier of the thing about like the, 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 the discovery of oil and how that impacts the family is really the crux of the end of act one going into mm -hmm. act two. And what I find interesting is people don't, when I've talked about the show, people don't highlight its environmental message. But if you really look at the lyrics, um, Bick Benedict, the husband, the rancher, talks a lot about the pride of his land and the pride of his breeds and 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 taking care. The whole thing with his sister, um, uh, Luz, who dies early in the show, but has these flashbacks with her. That's all about taking care of the land, loving the land, making the next generation care about the land and take care of it. And I think like that's something else that's hiding in the show that I think is really so cool is this beautiful message about um, land conservation, oddly. It's like a big part of it. Yeah. I want to just start with, I just love that. I guess it's like the main, would this be called the main theme? The dun, 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 dun. Yeah, Heartbreak Country. That, but it start like it starts. It's in the opening, Aurelia Dolores. Like it's yeah. it starts there as like kind of a is that like a a folk like a folk song that he's singing? Yeah, it opens with that with that with the with the Spanish folk song, which I thought was a really beautiful bold move because mm -hmm. you know one of the underlying tensions of the show is whose land is this anyway? You know. Mm -hmm. um, so to to start the show with the non-white people, even though they become sort of the main characters, was really a smart, bold move. Me diste tus flores 
Aurea Dolores Me cantaste las canciones De una paloma en luto Fuiste la tierra Aurea Dolores La tierra de la angustia Absoluta Entonces Un día Te perdí Un nuevo hombre Te robó Lejos de mí Le da Tus flores Aurea Dolores Le cantas Las canciones De una paloma En luto no sabe que nadie te puede But yeah, I think that theme is great. I remember when I saw the piece, like any, like my brain was like, anytime that, that, that theme came in, I was like, oh, there it is again. And like, I would, I like wanted to keep hearing it. And it, you know, it does keep coming back like throughout yeah. the show. And I felt like it, it like epitomized the show in a way that, that epicness that it really, even when it's played in like the folk song, like it still feels like we're going to tell this big, we're going to tell you this big tale. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think part of that, if we're talking about the score, sort of deep diving, you have to talk, you can't talk about this show without talking about Bruce Coughlin's um, mm. contribution as the orchestrator. I don't remember I, uh, how many pieces there were, but we're talking you know, 15 to 20 piece orchestra, which nowadays, especially for an off-Broadway show, was a luxury. Um, and not just like a 15 to 20 piece orchestra, we're talking like old school with like, a, I think there might've been a harp and a major string section, mm -hmm. um, you know, very romantic, very classic. Um, it was just, I don't know, the word that always comes to mind when I listen to it, I'm just like, mm, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Yeah. As I listen to it, like all those things, like I'm so like, oh yeah, the strings and everything, but actually the drums, I'm so fascinated by when the, by when the drums come in, in each, like, throughout like the score. Are you talking like the timpanis or more the kit? Any, well, any drums, but there's certain, I, and I'm not as well versed in drums to like differentiate exactly, but um, any, any time for the percussion a yeah. percussion element comes into the to a song i'm like whoa like what is that doing there <laughs> well because i guess that's one of the things too about an old school show is if you're driven by your strings and your woodwinds and a bass um when you get your percussion it it makes an impact um, yeah and i think about that actually if we're sort of deep diving into the score like if you look at the opening two songs uh, big songs did spring come to texas and then her which is his song um waiting for her to arrive and then she arrives and you get to know her in her song your texas that has those like very again like unashamedly romantic swells where the strings just out of nowhere the melody rises and the strings just move with it and then the timpanis come in and mm -hmm. you move, you move to a cymbal crash and it's right. just it's really refreshing to hear that because we don't get to hear that a lot in scores of the last 15, 20 years. Somebody else 
Alice may spend her life in search of the perfect butter knife to pair with the proper fork and proper spoon. Don't laugh, but I'd rather read Rousseau and Emerson, Carlyle, and Thoreau. Right here in my father's chair I've read the sort of ideas that cloud my head with daydreams. Big and small, I have daydreams, don't we all? When I read Thoreau, I smiled. He said all good things are free. say the your texas song for me is one of the highlights of the whole score that first lyric she has is so genius somebody else may spend her life in the search of the perfect butter knife right. to pair the proper spoon yada 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 and then to build all the way to the end and her say but that's not me not i and then she hold and of course it's like you know Kate Baldwin with that clarion tone. <laughs> Na -da, and then Bruce Coughlin just does those little chimes. Bing, bing, bing. String swell. And every time I'm like, oh. It's like, yeah. it's just, it's only those old school orchestrations can can give you that. Um, uh, and I also thought like that show, oh, sorry, that song did a great job of setting up a theme that's going to come throughout the show that again is like one of the things I love about this show that I think is like not a quote unquote sexy typical musical theater theme but I find lovely because it's actually real which is imagine blossoming at 40 blossoming mm -hmm. at 50 blossoming at 80 that's how I want to live and I was like you're doing a really good job of telling the audience subconsciously we're going to follow these characters through a long timeline and also get ready to be set up for disappointment which you know, it's a big part of life. Like things don't always turn out the way you think they're going to. And I know that sounds like a bummer, but I'm totally there to go on that journey and, and see people figure out how to navigate that. Imagine blossoming at 40, blossoming at 60, blossoming at 80. That's Yeah, I, that line also stuck out to me. I was like, wow, like we're like, just, I mean, anytime a woman is like talking about like how great things are going to be when she's older, like is, is also very uh, interesting to hear. Like imagine blossoming at 40 where, and what is it also 60? I think she, uh, I forget the age. I forget, I forget which ages, but. Um... Yeah, but like, like imagine, yeah, which is like so opposite of how, women usually are think it's like oh like for i i don't want to be 40. <laughs> right, right. i think i think you know actually it's interesting you talk about that because one of the things this would be a whole other conversation is 
male writers mm-hmm. writing for women and writing women's not just writing for um their voice but writing for their their voice lyrically and their story and i have to give yeah. my uh, I mean, look, I'm a man, so this is a little presumptive of me, but I have to, in my opinion, Michael John Lacusa does it really well in this show. It's yeah. really beautiful and and nuanced and balanced. And and if anything, I'm more on I'm more interested in her journey than his. Mm-hmm. And, and well, yeah, well, I think one Michael John Lacusa, uh, he, I feel like throughout his work, he's always been just an amazing writer for female characters, just totally. throughout. Too, I'm. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is also Sybil Pearson's book influence on the the songs. Like I, Sybil. I remember Sybil telling me because she would tell me and my thesis partner when we were working on our show. She said, "Oh, you know, um, I just had to get used to writing the script, and then Michael John taking all of my." And she would say in her adorable Sybil way, "Like, I just have to like get used to." you know, Michael John coming in and taking all my good ideas, but that's the process. And I know he's going to do it and, and make something beautiful with it. And, and it's sort of true. That is what happens for a book writer. Sometimes is they'll just write the play version of that mm-hmm. song moment. Um, I know sometimes the composer will ask for that. The composer lyricist will ask for it. Can you write this out so that I can then take it and do what I need to do with it? So if, if I may, if I may take mm-hmm. it back to the album, I'm looking at, yeah. my, I'm looking here at the track titles. I mean, I think, if you're going to talk about the album, you can't skip He Wanted a Girl. I which know. One song that seems to have sort of lived on, I've noticed, I've seen girls audition with it. I've heard it's been sort of on the sort of college circuit. I've which, seen people perform it for things, yeah. I mean, first of all, it's Katie Thompson. Do we need to on say the anything? the album, yeah. yeah. Do we need to say anything more? It's just, yeah. and um, my note on this song, it's an amazing song. We know that, but I think for me, what stands out upon listening to it is it's really a masterclass in writing lyrics with specificity. Mm-hmm. The images that she talks about, the stories she tells about her relationship with him and why that's breaking her heart, they land because they're so specific. There's no broad strokes in that lyric. dusty roads. He wanted a girl who cries porcelain tears. He wanted a girl who put locks on the door to protect all those gemstones she's got in her ears. But I'm a girl who likes dusty roads. Cause I'm a girl who enjoys the outside. Yeah, I was that girl who could keep up with him and would follow him anywhere he chose to ride and we would ride and one of the other things that that this song made me realize was there's always been this like interesting dialogue between country music and musical theater Mm -hmm. there's been people talking this year about shucked you know oh we finally have like a, a big country musical on broadway and i'm like well, actually, there's been country on Broadway since Oklahoma to an extent. Right. Some people would argue it's not very country, but the influences are there. Um, and I'm a, I'm actually a huge fan of country music, um, and I would love to see more of that dialogue happen. Um, 
I'm going to say something maybe controversial here. I actually think Shucked could have pushed that needle harder and further. Mm. I actually found it when I saw it, it was quite musical theater in a lot of moments. I was like, no, no, be more country, be more country. <laughs> um, and so one of the things I love about He Wanted a Girl is lyrically, it's a musical theater song, but musically to me, it's really country. Like mm. it, it's a, it's a hardcore folk country song. You could see a, you could totally see a girl sitting in the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville singing that song mm. with just a guitar picking through it. And you'd be like, that would, that would live there. Mm. Yeah. And just going back to the lyrics, like when the images it's yeah, the, the I mean, the first line is he wanted a, uh, he wanted a girl who hates dusty roads. <laughs> An image. And then I am, a, and then later I am, but I am a girl who likes dusty roads. Like, so I, you know, that it's like, you know, you have like the idea of like, you know, women who are pristine and the women who like get, are, don't care if they get dirty. Uh, but to say it in like, he hate uh, one who hates dusty roads and one who likes dusty roads. I just yeah. think that's, that's so cool. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, what else in the score stands out for me? Um, well, I said before, I, I love the character of Bali, the, mm-hmm. the sort of the, the sort of, you know, the, you know, you gotta have your like sort of, wisecracking um fountain of knowledge uncle you know who's yeah. there for your, who's there for your dramatic revelation and i really like the way he's used in this show and and john dawson is such a you know killer performer um mm-hmm. but what is so interesting is on the surface you think this character is that kind of elder statesman the the fountain of elder wisdom that's going to sort of move these characters into some sort of revelation so that they can move forward and quote as the song is called look ahead and sure it is that but what's interesting to me and obviously you know michael john and sybil are smart they're like well he can't just be that he can't just be a device he has to be someone interesting so i love the idea that um later on you get to know his background that he was a musician and then he was pulled back to texas to once again this is what this show is about like the family business the generations do the same thing over and over, over again and they use him as this incredible character that you're like is so unexpected oh here's this guy with this accent who decides to live out in the in the like countryside of the ranch not even in a house lives in a tent and also though actually like hung out with claude debussy in paris you know and, and had this deep artistic soul that was ripped away from him and then uses that to illuminate to the father to the brian darcy james character you don't understand your son and you need to understand that like kids have to make their own i was just the whole way that they used him um Mm. but not just as a device but as someone who you got to know 360 was just like masterclass to me in like how to use a b character Mm. Uh, yeah uh, yeah so that stands out for me. Um, let's see, what else? Well, I really found the My Texas moment, which comes mm. near the end of the act, really interesting because this is, you get one of those like rousing Texas country folk, very like Americana moments. But then you have this thing where the son, now we're at the point where the son is born and older. And comes out and says, you know, we actually stole the land from these people that you're singing about. This story about like standing the Mex- the the Texans standing up strong is 
not true. And then father lashing out at him. And then the the wife, the mother, Leslie, the Kate Baldwin character, stands out and she flips the whole thing. She flips the whole lyric, I hate this place. And when I'm stuck here in your Texas where you're racist and all you... And then the lyric is like, whoa. It's like literally talking points on Fox News and CNN right now. <laughs> Talk about your values and your land and your this. And I was like, holy crap. This has not changed one bit. So mm -hmm. I feel like that four-minute song accomplishes so much um, about what this what the show is about. I find it to be a really thrilling moment to listen to. It's very powerful. Yeah. You don't say it's history when it's full of lies. If you can't apologize, I strongly suggest you go now. Weren't we singing our song? This is my Texas, my dearest Texas, and I promise to love her till I die. I'll remember those days of glory. I'll live to tell the story of my Texas and the joy of days gone by. This is my Texas, my dearest Texas, and I promise to love her till I die. I'll remember those days of glory. I'll tell the story of my Texas and the joy of days gone. Days gone, months gone, years gone. In your Texas, I do not want your Texas. I just love like the the my Texas, your Texas. I mean, it's like kind of obvious, I guess, but I I just like a very simple way to use lyrics and titles yeah. to like make your make your points and show like what's happening with how people relate to a certain idea sure no my totally. texas your texas this texas <laughs> i will talk about the song jump which was like because i have a little story about this so jump is the introduction of a character named angel um who is of mexican ancestry lives on the ranch um and uh has sort of a mini arc here where you hear him sing this fun you know he has this fun sort of um i don't know what the genre would be like not bebop but it's sort of swing jazzy mm -hmm. it's really the first sort of like a big up-tempo production-y number in the show in a way um and so you get to know this character he has these dreams of stepping out of his background of his socioeconomic you know sort of uh, plight and joining the war because now we're in a world war ii and joining the war effort um and what's interesting is here's a character that has like a real like me song get the audience on board and then very quickly afterwards he's killed in the war and i remember people saying talking about this show i didn't like it i loved that character they gave him this big production number and then they killed him what was that about and it was similar michael john i think said either in talking about it or they said to me they're like well yeah that was the point that's real life mm -hmm. know someone and something happens in the world and they're taken away from us way too soon i'm sorry that we gave you a song where you got to love this character but that was kind of our point right and like dramatically why would you kill someone that 
nobody know, cares about. Like, you'd be like, well, I didn't know him, so I don't feel anything. <laughs> well, I actually really liked it. I, I yeah. yes, it's a beat. It's an arc. It's like a mini arc in the show because it, yeah. it, it ends almost as, as quickly as it began. But I also felt that underneath that, I don't know if Michael, John, and Sybil meant this, but for me, that was also a commentary on whose lives are worth more. Hmm. Whose stories count more. I think they're subconsciously telling you, like, the white people have more power. They're less likely to get drafted. They're, you know, or they can buy their way out. They're less likely than to die. They're, they're more likely to be remembered and to have opportunities and, and, and everything that goes with that. So I felt like that was, that mini arc was actually doing a lot. Yeah. Talking about the, 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 the race, class, socioeconomic issues that are embedded in the story. I feel like we can't do a deep dive without talking about the hotel room scene. Mm. So in the show, um, and if you've seen the movie, this is a pretty big part of the movie, which is Jet Rink later on is now an older man, um, a very wealthy oil baron, and has started to open hotels, um, which is all a commentary, too, on like what was happening in Texas with oil money, um, and, you know, um, uh, yeah. So so anyway, you have this scene with the women. You have Vashti, that's the um, that's the character played by um, Katie Thompson. You have one or two of the other wives, and then you obviously have the Kate Baldwin character, um, the main wife, sitting in a hotel room. They had this incredible scene that Sybil Pearson wrote. This like the girl talk, but like old wives, like women in their like midlife crisis, talking about their men. And I'd never seen anything like that, you know, in a musical. And it was so raw and real and funny. And again, it was this like deep respect that Sybil had for these characters. And then it leads into these little dual songs um, that on the album are titled The Midnight Blues, which is just an incredible little piece of music. Um, first, it starts with Katie Thompson singing about the midnight blues and the, and the sort of um, unsatisfaction she has in bed with her husband. Um, and then it immediately segues sort of cadences and cadences right into Kate Baldwin's song. Um, and it is another example of this show's refusal to give us a very simple dialogue about love and relationships. It's mm. really complicated. And I feel like you could get to the end of that song and some people be like, so what was the point of that? And I'm like, that's kind of the point is that mm. these characters have kind of realized they have to just survive. And I love that because that's real life in a lot of cases. So I feel like that's an, and it's also just the melodies there and the lyrics are incredible and the vocal performances are just, so, you know, (laughs) and then this all leads to that final 10 minute epic scene song, the desert. Right. We're back at the desert. (laughs) Where these two care, you know, um, if you haven't watched the show, what happens is the sort of climax that brings us there is the son, Jordy, or sort of like Jordan Jr., um, has married the Mexican woman. Um, mm-hmm. That's created a lot of tension. Um, and he, at this hotel, attacks Jet Rink, the oil baron, who's on stage giving off a racist tirade about Mexicans. So he goes up and defends his wife, and then he gets the crap kicked out of him. Mm-hmm. And this father who's been this proud, very white rancher, sees this happen to his son, and it finally sort of hits him. What's at stake here? And that what's going on is wrong. 
and he embraces his son and, you know, and, and embraces everything about him and his wife and what they stand for and what their dreams are. And obviously that helps start to patch up the relationship with his wife, who was coming from the East Coast and her more sort of different values from there and background understands her son more than the father does. So this leads you into this song about uh, called The Desert, where they're both standing out in the desert of the ranch. And it's really just a like, let's check in where we are song. <laughs> But it's obviously way more than that. And I, and the climax of the song is them asking each other again, what are your dreams? So what's interesting to me is the show kind of ends with a new I want song. Mm. Like they sort of, like I was saying earlier, they have these markers along the show, like Heartbreak Country and Look Back, Look Ahead, where they're kind of always renewing or re-upping their commitment to each other, their vows. And I think some people would say, I don't get this. Like, why can't I just have a typical story about a relationship? And, and then by the end, it's like either a happy ending or a sad ending. This is more of like a medium ending. And I'm like, because that is real life. And I love that they look at each other and say, what are your dreams for the next 20 years? And then she has this epic rhapsodic moment where she sings about watching her children go to college and graduate. And they're standing on the stage and don't even realize that they're standing in her daydream. And I am telling you, I cry every time I hear it. I don't know why I don't have kids. I, I don't know what it is, but I guess it's this idea that the show is ultimately about your dreams mm -hmm. and, and dealing with some of them coming true and some of them not and trying to find new ways forward. I'm like, what is more American than that? Like, really what is you know and then to look at each other and say it's fine i just want to keep talking i lose it every time i listen to that if i make it to 70 i'll be sitting in a huge auditorium in a huge texas university watching my grandchild graduating she'll be receiving her PhD in Russian literature. Why not? I'll be sitting in a row filled with all kinds of people, all kinds of people, all of us there, watching our children throw their caps in the air, whatever they do. And not one of them is even faintly aware they're standing in someone's daydream. beyond hoping we can make each other what we want. I don't want false hopes. I just want us to keep talking. The morning light makes that weed look like a flower. We're making love in this land. Do you know that? About all I know. Yeah, and it's like your dreams are going to probably change every 20 years or so, too. So it's always good to check in <laughs> with your dreams and reevaluate. I mean, that's kind of like that line we mentioned earlier, like imagine blossoming every 20 years. Imagine like having a new a new dream every 20 years, a new. Yeah. 
and then that's the show ultimately you know it's like it yeah it's like talking it out with you now i'm realizing yeah i guess that's part of the reason i think maybe it it didn't have a, a commercial life or hasn't had like a large life in you know stock amateur and, and other professional theater because i think it's not only is it a large show to produce you know big cast big orchestra yeah. but the themes are complicated the ending isn't really neat and think you know there's people who are like that's not what people want when they go to the theater and again that's a whole other conversation <laughs> yeah. but for me I love that the show is not leaning into those things it's still a show with characters that you embrace and understand and it talks about big themes and it has great melodies and 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 beautiful songs but ultimately underneath it all it's it's um it's just an exploration of like kind of the grind of life mm. yeah over over a long period of time uh should we move on to yeah. our next section uh why is this so good yeah so we're switching gears we're going to talk about a song from kimberly akimbo current show yeah i thought, I thought it'd be fun you asked me to come up with an idea for this and i thought yeah. well, I've, I've uh, just in the last week, I sort of was, I had like a, I'm not always great about listening to cast albums. I'm good about going to shows, but I don't, I don't yeah. listen to cast albums. I listen more to, you know, listen to a lot of other stuff. And, um, and I just like, a, I think when you sent me this question, I went, oh, this is a reminder. I should listen to the cast albums from this year. <laughs> uh, and I saw Kimberly Akimbo. I was one of the first people to saw it, uh, see it. I saw that, I think maybe the second preview at the Atlantic. Oh, nice. Uh, and I haven't seen it since it transferred. Yeah. So I haven't listened to the score as a whole since that night at the Atlantic. So I was listening to the album and there was a song that stood out to me. And um, yeah, I thought it might be fun for your why is this so good? Yeah. Well, let's get into Hello, Darling from Kimberly Akimbo. Well, you just kind of answered why you picked this song for why is this so good. So what why why do you think this so why do you think this is so good <laughs> okay well i'm sure okay so for those who are listening that have seen the show or been following it you're probably thinking this is an odd pick because it's not one of the big songs you know that like the the bonnie milligan stuff is what gets performed a lot um or the anagram song like any of the things that are between you know especially the main character um you know the kim character this is not this is kim's mother um and I, <laughs> I just think this song is hilarious. I think it's quirky and weird and it embodies exactly what this show is. It is also a masterclass in character-driven writing. Like it is very unhinged, which she is as a mother and a person. And I thought, why is this so good? Because it is a masterclass in form follows function. It's a sung letter monologue. So the mother, is singing to a video camera that she set up. The show takes place in, I believe, the 90s. So this is the mm -hmm. old school, like, you you bought the little Sony camcorder with the little, like, monitor that flipped out and you put it on a tripod or stood it on the table and you bought a little cassette and she puts it in and presses record and then she sits on the couch and then starts singing, hello, darling, it's me, your mother, and she's singing to the baby in her belly. And I was like, okay, this is a really fun, quirky setup. <laughs> also, it's also super 90s. And then she's singing this monologue. So there's no, there is a sort of melodic structure. Like there's a theme that it keeps coming back to, but it's 
not structured in any kind of classic AABA verse chorus way. It just sort of pulls you along the lyric and then it shifts. There's these great, like this, the story she has about her carpal tunnel and then the, the harmony, there's a harmonic shift. Why would I get an operation if I did on both hands, if I did not need it, why would I even make that up? And it's just like, it goes in all these weird directions. And just to me, even though it's not on the surface, the most the sort of like traditional song to get stuck in your head, that one more than any song from the show has been getting stuck in my head because the individual lines are so ridiculous and they're catchy in their own way. Um, so that's to me why it's so good. I think it's good because the music and lyrics just, they are totally in sync. And the one other thing I'm gonna say about this song, this is my call out to the world. David Lindsay Abair, please write <laughs> more musicals. You are so good at lyric writing. I'm not saying you shouldn't still be um, amazing. I believe you won the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. Like keep doing it, but please write more musicals because I want more of your lyrics in the world. They're really fun and different. And I also will also call out Janine Tesori's music. Um, I think she is really great at taking things that don't feel like they have a form and creating a musical form so that we can as listeners like latch on to uh some kind of structure in something that like if you just saw it on the page just feels formless or a ramble or you know something right. non non not a song <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she does a really good job always in that song, finding moments to come back to. So it's like, yeah, there is a there is a quote unquote sort of melodic structure to it, but yeah, it's not it's not AABA or anything like that, and yet that's what I yeah, that's what I love about it. That's why it's so good. Hello, darling. It's me, your mother. You're in my belly right now, and sometimes you kick me. Isn't that precious? Isn't that precious? Hey, guess what? I have no hands. Just kidding. I have hands, but I just can't use them. Not yet, at least. But just as soon as the stitches heal. I had carpal tunnel. Both hands. All those years in load, I took their toll. Sixteen years, I worked in the sunshine cupcake factory, pumping cream into those ding dong knockoffs. Sixteen years of squeezing, squeezing, squeezing that goddamn cream gun. I should sue. I should sue. I tried actually, but they said I made the whole thing up. How crazy is that? Why would I get operations on both hands if I did not need them? Anyway, darling, I have things to tell you. And this video may be the only way to do it because, well, there's a high probability that I might be dead soon. Yeah, I forget why I saw it, but I forget why she thinks she's gonna die. She has that. Oh, I don't remember. It was so long. Yeah, I think I might be dead soon. Yeah, I don't right. remember why. And she like thinks she's gonna die, but 
I don't think it's if as far as I recall, I don't think it's like a logical <laughs> There's a lot uh, of logical things in that show. Yeah. Cause that's why she's recording this, you know, for this right. baby because she thinks she wants to leave it something behind. Yeah, I I can't remember exactly why that that is I mean, yeah. but she does have carpal tunnel and she does yes. have these um yeah things going on with her hands <laughs> and you know and a big thing of the show is is the relationship between disaffected parents and their children you know they're mm. not the best most attentive parents and this song does a really good job of setting up the mother's quirks um yeah and i think i think part of it as i again if i recall correctly is like she wants to be do things differently with this child this new this child represents like something new for her which is also like this conflict between for for Kimberly because it's like you know she feels like what I I was not in like enough because I have this disease and like you're trying to start out you're trying to start over with like a new baby but like that I think that's that's part of it this song too is like she's she's trying to be better but like it like is you know she's it's still like the quirky like i'm gonna die soon so here's a yeah. video <laughs> totally is totally is um it's similar a bit to giant i think in that it's it's not a traditional you know it's not a traditional musical like it doesn't tie everything up with a neat bow i mean it has a very sweet endearing ending but it, it asks mm. even just in what you were saying about like the idea that this mother looks it just looks to her to her next child is something, you know, a new opportunity because the one she has right now is a disappointment because she has a disease and she doesn't know what to do about that. Like that's really rich. There's a lot of rich themes in this quirky little show that mm -hmm. uh, I got a lot out of when I saw it. Um, yeah. And I also wanted to bring up um, in the lyrics uh, that she has a whole section about how, about her carpal tunnel and like she wanted to sue and like they told they said she was making it up and like all, all this backstory about her work and her carpal tunnel i just it's just so interesting interesting to me that that is in this song and cuz they are they're like uh lower middle class i guess uh, i would say um and uh just the you know this little window into like how she's been treated at work Right, right. Well, that's the other thing the song does a really good job of is setting up their, their class, their mm -hmm. socioeconomic situation um, as just, yeah, like working class people who sort of are, are, are at the bottom of the pecking order and, and are getting abused and used. And, um, and it's important because all of those relate to the world that Kim lives in and the things that she wants and dreams for herself. Um, and, and she's up against those things. So I, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and the whole like, you know, I'm not going to be around. So here's the video. And the, but she's telling this this child like you like you have to defend me when people say bad things about me, <laughs> even though she feels like this. She thinks the child's not going to know ever meet her. Right. But there's like a little bit of like a desperation to this song, like it's not just like it's not just for the child it's this video is actually for me and right. my and my and, legacy <laughs> and what's the last lyric i think the last lyric is something like oh here they come because she hears the door 
the family can oh, make. Oh yeah, it's them. It's yeah, the ones, the ones who are going to tell you lies about me. Don't believe a word they say. Not a word. <laughs> right, that alone tells you so much. Mm -hmm. That does a lot of work. That's really funny writing. Darling, you have to defend me. You have to tell them that I was a lovely person. Caring and thoughtful and funny. And that you have the tapes to prove it. It's them. The ones who are going to tell you lies about me. Don't believe a word they say, not a word. To be continued, goodbye, darling. Mommy loves you. Well, let's move on to our final section, something wonderful. Just something in the musical theater world that we're excited about, looking forward to, want to give a shout out to. Yeah, I cannot, two things. Um, uh, first, shameless plug of self-promotion. Uh, yeah. I'm working on a, a musical right now called Captain Zook, um, which is about a fictional David Bowie-esque queer glam rock band in 1970s. Soho London, um, and we are going to be doing a concert for that in uh, late fall, early winter, date coming soon. So that's mm -hmm. exciting, putting that together. And I'm really, really excited to go see Here Lies Love on Broadway, because I saw it mm. at the public two, maybe three times all those years ago. And for me, it's a, like a very seminal theater-going memory. So I'm really obviously curious, but mostly excited to see it transferred into this Broadway theater and how they ripped it apart to, to fit it in. Yeah. Yeah. I do need to see that because I did not see it at the public uh, when it was there. So I <clears throat> need to see that. And I just got a ticket for the, the new Sondheim musical. I was going to, I need to do that. They're very expensive. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it's the price of, um, the, yeah. It's the price of like a typical Broadway show, true. which, true. which uh, is, you know, it's not a Broadway show, but you know. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter or X at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to our Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode. <laughs>